Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Over the last year, we've heard the same statistics used in presentation after presentation on the opioid epidemic. Over 64,000 people died of drug overdoses in 2016, more than in automobile accidents, guns, and HIV infection. These statistics have been used to advocate for laws restricting opioid prescribing practices, making prescriptions for pain management much more difficult to get for those suffering with chronic pain. Some are beginning to question these statistics and the policy changes driven by them. Joining me today to talk about that is Dr. Josh Bloom, the Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the American Council on Science and Health. So, Dr. Bloom, welcome. Thanks for having me, Greg. Okay. So, um, Dr. Bloom, you wrote um, a couple of articles that I'd like to talk about today, and I'd like to start off with the one that is titled, How the Feds Are Fueling America's Opioid Disaster. You wrote that in December of 2016, and um, we'll start off by uh, one section in it. You call it a myth that uh, lacks prescribing of opioid drugs such as oxycodone is the primary driver of addiction. That's exactly what the experts are telling us, experts uh, across America, including some pretty prominent people, such as Sam Quinones, author of Dreamland. They're telling us that's the way that it's happening. Why is he wrong? Well, the, the primary fallacy is that after OxyContin came out in the mid-1990s, that uh, doctors were way too liberal with prescribing it to pain patients the pain patients became addicted, and these are the people who are now going to heroin, which is more recently fentanyl. And that's just plain wrong. That's a lie. And there's plenty of literature to back this up, especially um, reviews by um, a number of sources. And uh, the journal Pain and Cochrane Reviews, they all say about the same thing, that the um, the percentage of pain patients who are being treated appropriately with opioids that become addicted is probably less than 1%. And I've seen numbers as low as 0.4%. And also, um, I've spoken to a number of pain management physicians who say that it's rare to see any of their patients get addicted if they're treated properly. So right away, you begin, if you begin the story wrong, the entire story is going to be wrong. So, I mean, gosh, that just sounds like the pharmaceutical companies and their position on this from the mid-90s. How do you square that? I mean, because it, it does, it that contradicts everything that we're hearing today, that 80% of heroin addicts started with prescription for opioids. That's a misleading statement. Uh, does that mean that it started from prescription opioids, prescriptions written for them when they need the pain, uh, pain relief, or is it other people getting their hands on those prescriptions? Because 
those two numbers don't match up, and they're not even close. So I, I'm going to go with the you know pretty large amount of literature that 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 says that that's just false, or it's a different way of looking at it. That's that's um, tweaking the numbers to come up with a false answer, which has been the common theme for the last couple of years when I've been writing about this subject. Numbers are tweaked. Stories are false. And this has been happening over and over. Next, Dr. Bloom talked about the three important phases of the opioid epidemic. You have to look at this in um, three phases. And the first would be the approval of um, OxyContin in the mid-90s. And the theory behind it was fine to give a larger dose of a pain reliever that that's released slowly and gives a steady state um, amount of the drug in the blood. And this is usually preferable for any type of long-term treatment. Steady blood levels generally are better than up and down, which you get with taking pills every four hours. So the science behind it was okay, but then I think Purdue Pharma, who was the maker of OxyContin, uh, took that quite a bit too far and over-exaggerated the safety of OxyContin to doctors, and they've paid $650 million so far, and some people have gone to jail, and I think that's just getting started, and they deserve whatever they get, the ones that become addicts. The pain patients generally do not. So this was phase one of the three phases. What was phase two? Yes. Uh, phase two, let, let's, go to, let's do 1A. And okay. 1A began when um, people learned that you could defeat the um, extended release properties of OxyContin by grinding it up. So if you swallow the pill, it would release the drug slowly. But if you ground it up, all the physical um, controls on, on the release were, were destroyed. So right away, you've got a huge dose of oxycodone, uh, as much as 80 milligrams, which is 16 um, Percocet pills all at once. And people would snort it, inject it. And if you're dealing with uh, 80 milligrams of oxycodone, addiction's guaranteed. It's, a, it's one of the stronger opioids, and it's an awful lot of it. So, you know, there's your recipe, was putting the pills out in huge amounts and then people discovering how to abuse them. And so all of those people, the, the, mass, uh, the vast majority of the people that became addicted um, are those that are not using it under supervision uh, but are abusing it, crushing it, snorting it, shooting it, et cetera. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. And the literature backs that up entirely. So I, I have no problem, you know, saying that, that that's true. So um, phase two uh, was kind of a terrible confluence of events, and that happened in 2010. Um, it turned out that uh, Purdue had been looking for years to find better formulations for OxyContin that couldn't be abused or were more difficult to. Had they done this in 1995, none of this 
may have happened. It probably would not have happened. But um, it's now 15 years later, and there are a whole bunch of people hooked on oxycodone. And all of a sudden, the new formulation, which hit the shelves in 2010, was very difficult to abuse. So when they tried to grind it up, it just turned into a gum, and they really couldn't do all that much with it. So you can see from you know, data from the CDC, the NIH, that um, as soon as that stuff came out, its use really fell off a cliff. And at the exact same time, the heroin use went, went shooting up. The, the lines cross each other. It's perfectly obvious what's going on. So people couldn't get the large amount of oxycodone they needed. They went to the streets and they got heroin. And then you started to see the heroin deaths escalate very rapidly at the same time that resistant oxycodone came out. And then phase three is the worst. And about 2013, we started to see the infiltration of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs into the country. And this is when the deaths really accelerated because these are the most dangerous drugs ever in the history of the world. Uh, some of them are so potent that a little grain that you can't even see with your eye will be fatal. So once there was obviously a market for heroin and fentanyl was a cheap, easy substitute for heroin, it's very hard to detect. You need much, much less of it, and it's easily made. Um, when I was in an organic chemistry lab for my first career, I could have made five pounds of it in a couple of days and walked out of the lab with it, and nobody would ever know. So um, almost all of the illicit fentanyl and its analogs was coming from China and being smuggled uh, through Mexico by the drug cartels. So. That's when all hell broke loose, when you couldn't get quote-unquote safe heroin anymore. So I want to move on to the um, another article I wanted to feature in this podcast, and that is the article that you wrote in October of 2017. It was titled, The Opioid Epidemic in Six Charts Designed to Deceive You. In that article, you call into question and the executive director of the uh, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing um, for the statistics that they developed, which are now commonly referred to, uh, that uh, compare the opioid epidemic to car crashes and the outbreak of HIV. So why was this executive so off base? Uh, it was either accidental or intentional. It was certainly wrong. And from all the readings I've done and how things are stated and statistics are massaged, it would seem to me that um, this was an intentional um, attempt to overblow the um, effect, the impact of pills, and to make the American public, politicians, policymakers, believe that there were too many damn pills in 1995, there are too many now, and they're killing people. I asked Dr. Bloom to break down the numbers for us. The number of people being killed by pills, if you listen to, you know, standard um, papers from 
different people in PROP, and Andrew Kolodny is not the director anymore, but it doesn't matter. He was at the time. The, um, they, they go with this 60,000 number. And first of all, it's dishonest, because when people hear that, they're going to think 60,000 people were killed by Percocet or Vicodin. But that's, that's plain old wrong. And um, that includes antidepressants, aspirin, cocaine, heroin. Those are all drugs, legal and illegal, prescription or over-the-counter, that killed people in 2016. So right away, when I hear this 60 or 64,000 um, $64, number, that's a deceiving number. Okay, so it's deceiving because of the fact that it's representing it's all drugs, loss of life from all drugs, not just yeah, opioids. but not saying that. Right. So the implication is that it's opioids. So then when you, when you do a little bit of math, uh, you can narrow it down to the total deaths from all, all opioids, and that's 30,000. So right away, it's been misstated by twofold. But that number also includes heroin. So heroin has nothing to do with pills. It's much more dangerous. And when you subtract out the deaths from heroin, the, the number drops to about half that, 15,000, 16,000. So right away, the, um, the 64,000 number is at least threefold exaggerated. But it's, it, it's even more than that because um, a study out of the CDC also looked at use of benzodiazepines like Valium in conjunction with opioids. And you can see um, from 2002 to 2015, there were a, was a huge increase to roughly 8,000 cases where benzodiazepines and opioids were involved in overdose deaths. And the two of them are not additive, they're synergistic. So both of those together make a much more dangerous combination than either one of them apart. So now you can take the 16 or so thousand uh, deaths and cut it in half because half of them involve the benzodiazepine. So Chances are that those are people taking multiple drugs to get high. So that leaves you with 7,500 or so. Uh, people are also taking cocaine, methamphetamine, and alcohol with um, opioids and dying from that. So I think it's reasonable to assume that about 5,000 people are dying from pills. Uh, at this time, which is about the same number of people that die, die from bike accidents. So uh, this, this number is 10 or 12 times inflated from what you hear in the news, but nobody says this. But even if it's overstated, um, isn't the point to try to uh, get action taken and policy change to address this? And doesn't it help to accomplish that, even if it is grossly overstated? It's actually helped to do exactly the opposite. Because um, the only strategy that the CDC and, uh, has recommended is cutting 
the number of pills and cutting doses and this involuntarily tapering patients down, some of whom have been on these medicines for you know, 10 or 20 years and are doing fine. They're not addicted. They just need them to get out of bed in the morning. So uh, the strategy of going after prescriptions, which are going to affect pain patients more than anybody else, is crazy because they suffer. The fear among that community is enormous. The number of suicides is going up. And perhaps the most ridiculous stat of all is that um, it's quite a few pain patients are not able to get any physician to prescribe opioids anymore because the DEA is, is really breathing down the neck of doctors and they're being prosecuted and they're getting warning letters. So if I'm a physician, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to write these prescriptions even though it's the right thing to do for my patients. So you have a bunch of people who have crushed spines or diseases or uh, neuropathies that can't get the pain relief anymore. So what do they do? They go out into the street to buy heroin, which is now fentanyl, and they die. So more people are dying, the more pills are restricted. So it, it, it seems perverse, but it, it's perfectly clear that as the number of pills goes down, the number of deaths are going up. And those are not unrelated. So both the, the addicts who were forced to go to heroin, to fentanyl, more of them are obviously dying with fewer pills. And the pain patients who can't get the, the, the medicine they need, they're also dying because they're going to these much, much more dangerous drugs. So the policy has been a complete and utter failure, has accomplished nothing and hurt quite a few people. And you state in your article that assigning blame to the pharmaceutical companies is irrelevant and does nothing to keep overdose victims alive. But what about funding community efforts to save lives through prevention, harm reduction, and treatment programs? They could help do that. Well, um, I guess I would I'd go back at you with the question that what, st what started the methamphetamine or uh, cocaine or crack epidemics. Nothing. They were drugs. They were not prescription drugs that were abused. They were just drugs. We couldn't stop that. Uh, why, why should this be any different? Well, because as you state in phase one, OxyContin had a lot to do with it. It was it a did. revolutionary drug that um, now they were able to abuse and um, and and just gave them a high that they'd never had before and get hooked on it very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, chemically, pretty close to uh, heroin, right? Well, the, the trouble is that you can't lump the whole pharmaceutical industry together because they don't all make uh, painkillers. Some of them do. Uh, uh, Purdue, obviously guilty um, of all kinds of bad things and yeah, but um, to to say that now that pharmaceutical companies are causing these deaths is just a lie because they're not. All all the almost all the deaths that are being reported are uh, heroin and fentanyl with with other drugs way below that. The roots of it, though, 
trace back as as you, you mentioned to phase one. Right. Yeah. But that you know that doesn't. Yeah, you can, yeah. The blame will be assigned, and the lawyers will get paid, and hopefully a bunch of criminals will be put in jail. But none of that is going to do one thing to address the fentanyl deaths that are going on now. And that fentanyl is the enemy. You talk about the misconception that the federal government crackdown on painkillers resulted in people suddenly switching from prescription opioids to heroin. Isn't part of the switch really due to you know a supply shortage uh, from oh. the pill mill closures? Uh, you know, it's it's been described as a mixture of market forces plus changes in laws and enforcement. Uh, both of them put pressure on the supply of opioid pills. And economically, a single pill, which cost three cents to make, would go for $40 on the street, and a bag of heroin would go for $5. So there was supply and um, regulation, both of which contributed to pushing people um, towards the much more dangerous drugs. So um, the, uh, the overall, the overriding point of this, uh, this latest article was that uh, your claim that the prop played a significant role in creating what you call the uh, disastrous CDC guideline for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. So, doctor, what would you have done differently? Well, I wish I could go back in time and sit in on those meetings because I don't know who nominated PROP to make federal drug policy, and I don't know why the CDC is involved at all. They're good at hunting down Ebola. And, and again, let me just jump in. PROP was the Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. Sorry, doctor. Go ahead, please. Right. That's a group that came out of Brandeis University. And I don't know why they were involved at all, and I don't know why the CDC was involved. The CDC is, deals with infectious diseases for the most part. Yet this policy came out of the CDC with heavy involvement from PROP. And people have different suspicions about why that was, whether it was financial or otherwise. And I haven't written about that because I'm not an investigative reporter, I'm a scientist, and I pick data apart. But um, there's, there's a common belief that there is a financial, um, there are financial ties to this, but I, I don't really want to say any more about that because I don't have the facts uh, in front of me. So um, if you run this program and you are in oh, the I'm room, sorry, what's I just, the outcome? I, had to add, I, I, I forgot to add one thing that's important. The, the FDA took a look at the CDC's plan and basically said none of it was supported by evidence. Um, the CDC went ahead and ignored the FDA, and what was supposed to be advice to doctors became law essentially in all the states now. So all kinds of things went wrong here. Um, there was a shift in power, and uh, I guess there was a, a war between agencies, and it was just a gigantic mess which ended up in a gigantic mess, which you could have predicted easily two years ago. Two years ago, when this was in play, if you led the operation, what what would be the outcome? Or what would you want to be the outcome, put it that way? Well, for starters, I'd want to... 
I'd, I'd want to ask why the CDC was involved at all and what PROP's role is in guiding them. I'd want to know why they ignored an FDA report which basically refuted all the evidence that they used to make the recommendations. I'd want to know why recommendations are turning into laws. And uh, I mean, there's your start of a very bad policy. Next, Dr. Bloom talked about the impact of restricted opioid prescribing on those in chronic pain. Most of them are, are terrified and suffering because they call me, write me all the time, help, I can't get out of bed, I'm going to blow my head off, please help me. And I have to tell all these people I can't help them, I can only write about this. There's an enormous amount of suffering going on in this country. And I've challenged the ACLU to uh, to step forward and see why uh, the rights of pain patients are being ignored while they're busy worrying about who goes to what bathroom. So there, this just this whole thing is wrong, and the um, the victims are really the ones with the least power to do anything about it because they're bedridden. So it's really, um, uh, there is kind of a predatory feel to this entire episode, which we will look back years from now and decide it was disgusting and, and really barbaric. So, Doctor, we've got time for just uh, one last comment from you. And sure. what would you like to leave our uh, listeners with? What do you like the, uh, would you like them to take away from this podcast? Well, um, You'd have to go to March 2018 when I wrote an article called The CDC Quietly Admits It Screwed Up Counting Opioid Pills. So they tucked a little piece away in an obscure journal when they admitted that they uh, overcounted pill deaths significantly. And I doubt they wanted anybody to see it. The article Dr. Bloom refers to, The CDC Quietly Admits It Screwed Up Counting Opioid Pills, that he wrote and was published in March of 2018, is also available on our website, right along with this podcast, in fact. I want to read you one excerpt from that. He says, by combining fentanyl deaths with those from prescription drugs, it automatically skews the results. The stats from the CDC have been BS all along. They are now sheepishly admitting it, but not until the BS numbers were already used to formulate the god-awful policy which is now plaguing millions of us, all based on a bunch of lies. Basically, they're pleading guilty in this article. Yet, has anything been being done to correct it? No. So the, the entire um, attack plan for dealing with this is wrong. Uh, we're going after the wrong target in, in going after prescription pills. It would be like if um, if North Korea attacks us and we attack Mexico in response. So we're going after the wrong target. We're hurting people. More people are dying. Somebody please tell me in any, way, any possible way how this is helping anyone because I haven't seen it. We've been joined today by Dr. Josh Plume, who is the Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the American Council on Science and Health. He's offered for us a different perspective on the statistics 
as well as many of the aspects of the opioid epidemic as we see it today in America. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.